and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Ellie Philpotts, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we're looking at what we know about GP contract negotiations in England for 2023-24 after the BMA rejected NHS England's insulting offer. We're discussing an integrated care board's plans to commission all GP enhanced services via primary care networks and what the wider implications of this could be. And we're talking very briefly about the findings of the GMC's latest review on bias in its processes. Finally, our good news story this week is about a community in Cornwall that's going to extra lengths to find a new GP to join their local practice. First up, earlier this month, the BMA's GP committee in England rejected, and I quote, an insulting proposed change to the GP contract for 2023-24. It warned that the offer from NHS England put patient safety at risk and could accelerate the death of general practice. Nick, we found out about this from a press release from the BMA. What exactly did the union have to say about all of this? So, as you said, the, the BMA's GP committee voted to reject the contract offer put on the table by NHS England, and they rejected it in pretty emphatic terms, calling it an insult and warning that if this was really the best NHS bosses can come up with, it brings the death of general practice one step closer. Practices are currently facing sharp rises in energy bills and staff costs, but the offer from NHS England provided no extra funding to help practices meet those costs, according to the BMA. They said the package offered by NHS England completely ignored the unsustainable, unsafe pressures practices are under right now. One thing to point out here is that general practice is currently partway through a five-year contract package that started in 2019. And that multi-year deal set out funding increases that the profession could expect each year for five financial years. And the next financial year, 2023-24, is the last year of the deal. But inflation has skyrocketed to a level way above the funding increase built into that five-year contract. The government and NHS England have made it pretty clear that they don't see that pre-agreed package as negotiable. Although over the past couple of years, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a willingness to relax targets, guarantee elements of funding and so on. So there has been some flexibility. And the current situation GPs are working in is still clearly extreme. GP practices are providing record numbers of consultations to a patient population that's ageing and increasingly complex, many of them facing long waits for hospital treatment because of the massive NHS backlog. And practices are having to deliver this workload with a workforce that's down by the equivalent of nearly 2,000 GPs compared to 2015. So in a scenario like that, to be told that there's no real offer of extra support or funding at a time when costs are spiralling feels brutal to a profession that has said over and over again that it's at breaking point. And this isn't the first time BMA's criticised a contract offer. Obviously, over recent years, offers have been described as a kick in the teeth or as disappointing. And contracts have ended up up being imposed when talks over a package of measures has collapsed in the past. Um, But the language this time goes further than some of those previous criticisms, and that reflects the colossal pressure on general practice. BMA leaders say that unless something changes, more GPs will leave, and those that remain may be forced into industrial action to protect their profession and the services that they're able to offer their patients. The reasons the BMA have given about rejecting the contract is, is very much about the money you know, or the lack of money. There wasn't much detail in, in that initial press release about what was actually in the contract offer, only what wasn't. 
But do we know any more about what the planned contract changes were that were on the table and, and were rejected? If we know anything about them, they sort of probably give some kind of idea about what NHS England and the government want general practice to focus on in the coming year. We have fairly limited detail of what's on the table, but there are some indications of what the focus is on and some clues as to why the current offer was rejected by the BMA so emphatically. Obviously, as we mentioned, the the key factor here is money. Uh, Costs are rising fast for practices. They're under a lot of pressure. The basic increase built into the five-year contract deal just doesn't touch the sides. And the government and NHS England haven't offered support to bridge that gap. But from what I understand from talking to GPs who are in and around the BMA's GP committee, there are a few other sticking points that also contributed strongly to the contract package being rejected. For example, uh, the government and NHS England remain wedded to the idea of forcing GPs to declare their earnings. BMA says it only agreed to the declaration of earnings idea in principle and on the basis that it would only happen for general practice if it happened for other professions such as pharmacists and dentists too. But GPs feel now that they've been singled out because they're being asked to declare their earnings, while other groups have not been asked to do that. Another factor, from what I understand, is that government negotiators have been unwilling to make any significant changes to the childhood immunisations area of the quality and outcomes framework. Uh, That's likely to be a major frustration for the BMA because it says that a change in the targets has made them too hard to achieve and practices are losing income. There's also concern about plans to withdraw £20 million a year in funding to help practices with costs associated with subject access requests. So that's requests from people essentially for their personal data held by a practice to be shared. And and that's extra work that practices can't charge for. And I'm told that the package rejected by the BMA would have removed that funding. And to give a bit of background on that, the, the BMA guidance on the contract for last year says that the original five-year agreement planned for this £20 million a year subject access fund to stop after 2021-22. In the end, it continued in 22-23, the current financial year, because costs were continuing for practices. And the BMA's view is that although there was a plan to stop this funding, this was only meant to happen when certain conditions were met. And last year, those conditions hadn't been met, so the funding continued, and presumably they believe it should be rolled over again. I'm also told that there was a plan to move a significant chunk of additional cash into PCN level access targets. I guess that's no surprise. It's been a big focus for NHS England and the government. NHS England has been keen to stress that talks are still ongoing over the contract for 2023-24. A lot of the GPs I spoke to you know, talked about the fact that it's um, negotiations are at a sort of delicate stage. Perhaps there will be still some movement on some of these areas, but the government's stance has seemed fairly rigid in terms of wanting to stick to the five-year contract, certainly in terms of funding, despite the landscape having changed immeasurably for general practice in the years since it was agreed. And ultimately, as we've said, that could box GPs into a corner and push them towards uh, something like industrial action. It is important to see all of this against a backdrop of practices being genuinely worried about their long-term viability, isn't it? I mean, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, and we, we did a survey recently that highlighted practices' concerns about rising costs and the impact this has had on their business. The BMA isn't really exaggerating when it talks about a real threat to the future of general practice. A recent survey from the RCGP, which we wrote about this week, found that over a quarter of GPs said that their practice was at risk of closure, didn't it? Yeah, so a big poll by the RCGP is yet to be published in full, found that around 27% of people working in primary care felt their practice was at risk of closure. 
most of them, nine in 10, blamed uh, unmanageable workloads, the key driver behind this. And about two thirds also highlighted partners leaving and a shortage of uh, salary GPs. I, I mean, I put some figures together recently that show there are lots of PCNs nationally where more than a third of GPs are aged over 55. So their workforce situation is really precarious because we know a lot of these doctors are likely to retire soon. And when you throw into this mix a contract that the BMA feels completely ignores the pressure on general practice, as you say, it, it's not exaggerating to say that it could threaten practice's future. Yeah. And you've also been speaking to financial experts about how the cost of living crisis and inflation in particular are affecting the sustainability of GP partnerships, haven't you, which ties into all of this? What we're seeing is that the, the cost of buying into GP partnerships has risen sharply because interest rates have gone up. A board member for the Association of Independent Specialist Medical Accountants, Andy Powell, says new GP partners are being quoted 9% or more for unsecured loans to buy into practices at the moment. That's compared to interest rates of, say, 4% just a few years ago. Practices receive rent reimbursement from the NHS, but that's only re-evaluated every few years. So although interest rates have gone up suddenly, that payment hasn't changed. And what that means in practical terms is that the share of the rent reimbursement each partner receives is unlikely to cover the cost of a buy-in loan with 9% plus interest. So a new partner might be making a loss on that, which would have to be covered by profit on other elements of practice income. So it's a significant risk to take on if you're buying into a practice. And property prices have also been rising fast over recent years. So the size of these loans is often really substantial. And this isn't just an issue for new partners, because like mortgages, uh, loans for buying into a practice are often agreed with a fixed interest rate for, say, five years. So a partner who bought into a practice some years ago and now finds their loan deal needs to be renewed could also face a really sharp rise in costs. And so even long-standing GP partners who may have paid off any loans and now just hold a share of equity in a practice might have to consider changing how they set up their partnership to attract new doctors in. Um, you know, I mentioned that those 9% or higher interest rates are for unsecured loans. What that means is it's different from, say, a mortgage on a house where generally the bank can just sell the house if you can't pay. Uh, unsecured loans aren't backed up by the property in that way. And interest rates can be higher as a result because they're riskier for the bank. So partnerships may have to look increasingly at attracting new partners by helping them to take out loans that are secured against the premises, something that means for a long-standing partner who doesn't have a loan, um, it may be a case of taking on some more risk uh, financially in order to attract in new partners. And ultimately, at a time when workforce data show a clear and steady flow of GPs out of partnership roles, we've discussed often on this podcast, this is another factor that, that just won't help. It all kind of adds to a fairly bleak picture for practice finance at the minute. One other thing it's probably worth mentioning as part of this, we're also in this process at the minute of pay review bodies with the BMA government and NHS England submitting evidence to the pay review bodies about the sort of uplift doctors could expect to see this year. I mean, we've mentioned already that GP partners will not be covered by it because they're covered by the five-year deal. But NHS England has submitted some evidence over the last couple of weeks about pay increases for salaried GPs and practice staff. What did that say? So NHS England asked the Doctors and Dentists Review Body, which makes recommendations to the government on pay, 
uh, to back a 2.1% pay rise for salary GPs in 2023-24. I mean, that's obviously well below inflation, would be a you know massively sub-inflationary pay increase. Uh, but they said that that's the level that will be affordable for practices under the five-year pay deal, which we mentioned a bit earlier. The government has yet to submit its evidence to the review body. So there's usually evidence from NHS England and from the Department of Health and Social Care as well. And the government has yet to submit its evidence, despite the fact that the deadline for it to do so was mid-January. Anyway, NHS England's stance makes clear that it and the government are not expecting to deliver any uh, significant additional funding to support general practice beyond what's agreed in the multi-year deal, despite circumstances now, as we've said, being radically different to what was envisaged at the time the deal was agreed. Our next story is sort of related to what we've been discussing about contracts and funding. Last week, we published a story about an integrated care board, Northwest London ICB, that's looking to commission all of its GP enhanced services via primary care networks as opposed to with individual practices. Ellie, you wrote about this. So what's going on here? Yeah, thanks, Emma. So the long-term plan uh, released by NHS England in 2019 actually first showcased these plans to move a commissioning of local enhanced services from individual practices to PCNs as a whole. So obviously that's quite a while ago now, but then we had the COVID pandemic in the middle um, and that probably slowed down any changes on this front. And also we've had a move from CCGs to integrated care boards, which has meant that a lot of the reorganisation at that level has sort of been changed. And so perhaps commissioners haven't actually had time to start looking at this in any great detail. But as far as we know, this is one of the first times that we're seeing this shift to commissioning local enhanced services and PCNs on such a wide scale. So it's likely that there are some ICBs out there that do commission some local enhanced services from PCNs. But Northwest London is talking about shifting all local enhanced services to PCNs. So this is actually just a draft contract at the minute, um, and it covers a whole range of services. So from ambulatory blood pressure monitoring to mental health, medicines management to phlebotomy. And to reiterate, these will be moving towards being commissioned by the PCM. And so this means that PCNs are going to have to decide how to organize themselves. And this might differ quite a bit from how they are now. Now, a key point for PCNs here is that the contract we've seen says that they only have three options in response. So these are, one, for a lead practice to hold the contract on behalf of the whole PCN. Two, for a federation or neighbouring PCN to manage the contract on a PCN's behalf. And then finally, for a PCN to hold the contract if they've established themselves as a single legal entity and if they're qualified to hold a contract. The likeliest option, of course, is the first one. And we know that some PCNs have already formed a limited company. Not many have yet. So it's looking like quite a stark change in direction. And of course, enhanced services are worth quite a lot of money nationally. As of this year, it's 644 million. And it does seem even more likely now that other ICBs will be looking more closely at this sort of model. As I say, it's still a draft contract. Discussions are ongoing. And we're not aware of any PCN signing it just yet. But we'll definitely be keeping quite a close eye on this um, and see what happens going forward. Yeah, I mean, that's a key point you mentioned there about the funding. Local enhanced services are a really important part of GP practices income and effectively moving this money from being paid directly to practices and instead funneling it through PCNs 
is quite potentially problematic on a number of levels, I think. I mean, I suppose you can see it from the ICB's point of view, why it would rather commission these services from, you know, 40 odd PCNs as opposed to having contracts separately with 300 or so practices. You know, that makes life much easier for them. But that does mean that commissioners are effectively shifting a huge, you know, administration burden down to PCNs, which is something London-wide LMCs pointed out in your story, Ali. I think whatever of those three models PCNs adopt, then either the PCN company or the federation or the lead practice is suddenly responsible for dividing up all that money appropriately across member practices. And like you said, Ellie, lots of PCNs aren't limited companies. So it means a lead practice could effectively be taking all the payments. And then you have this situation where a practice that used to be paid directly by the ICB or the CCG previously for the work it does now sees all of that money being paid to a neighbouring practice and then they have to wait for it being passed on. Meanwhile, the lead practice suddenly has loads of extra work sorting out payments. There's also the question of who monitors you know, what each practice is doing so that you can divide the payments up fairly. Who fills out the reports that the ICB will no doubt want completing so that they can assess progress? So quite easy to see why this isn't necessarily a satisfactory arrangement from any practice's point of view. I imagine all of that's going to be quite tricky, even in PCNs where relationships between member practices are really good. But imagine the potential problems in networks where relationships are more tricky. The other point worth mentioning about this is is moves like this will really start to inextricably tie practices into PCNs in a way they perhaps haven't really been up until now. I mean, they are tied in in for the the ARRS funding and things like that, but that, that is kind of new money. What we're talking about here is historic money that practices would have relied on for years and years and years as a key part of their business. I mean, we also know it's BMA policy after votes at various conferences to pull practices out of PCNs and to, to try and negotiate for that associated funding to be moved into the core contract. I mean, we've talked about that on the podcast before, but a contract like this would make that really, really difficult for practices to leave a PCN. Nick sort of touched earlier on the possibility of industrial action in the wake of this year's contract negotiations. I mean, we know that that one option that was voted on in an indicative ballot of GP practices at the end of 2021 was pulling out of PCNs. And that could well be something on the table again if we move towards industrial action this year. Interestingly, just on a slight side, we ran another story on our website this week about GPs' views about integrated care systems and whether or not they would benefit patients and general practice. This was based on a survey we conducted earlier this year, and it's safe to say, I think, that GPs are very sceptical about whether integrated care systems will improve patient care. But one of the other things that really came out was a real fear that ICSs could lead to an increase in workload for general practice, but also concerns that practice funding could be cut you know, in particular, some GPs raised concerns that ICBs would lean on PCNs to deliver more services and that funding would increasingly be channeled through networks. And also that networks were already having to pick up some of the work that CCGs had done. And I think this contract in Northwest London, I guess, is a, is a real reflection in real life of how some of those fears could come to pass. Moving on, this week the GMC accepted 23 recommendations about reforms that are necessary to help reduce the risk of bias in its regulatory work. The report follows widespread concerns from doctors and others about racial bias in particular and follows the recent case of Manchester GP Dr Manjula Aurora, who was needlessly suspended after a medical tribunal found that a claim to have been promised a laptop constituted serious misconduct. Nick, what changes did the report recommend? So this is an internal report commissioned by the GMC, and it looked at how the regulator identifies and mitigates the risk of bias in its work. 
this is a really significant issue because less than two years ago, an employment tribunal found that the GMC had racially discriminated against a doctor. And only a few months ago, as you mentioned, another review found that the regulator missed multiple opportunities to prevent the needless suspension of Manchester GP, Dr. Manjula Aurora. And this latest review highlights some concerns from stakeholders, including doctors' organisations, about the regulator's approach and sets out recommendations to change how GMC decision-making is audited. It recommends a a consistent core set of good practice decision-making checks and controls that would apply across the GMC. That's basically the outline of what it recommended. The changes have been broadly welcomed, though, by doctors, haven't they? Well, what's been welcomed by the BMA is that it felt that this review recognised that bias exists in the GMC and needs to be systematically challenged. The BMA called this a welcome change of approach. And I think that's simply because some previous reports and reviews uh, from the GMC have said that the GMC or found that the GMC is is not biased in its decision making. One of the points raised by stakeholders interviewed uh, as a part of this latest review was that that simply wasn't representative of their lived reality. So the fact here that the GMC is effectively acknowledging at least the possibility that bias can exist within it and that it actively needs to be rooted out is something that doctors are welcoming. We've just got time for our good news story for this week, which is about a search for a new GP to join a two-partner practice in Loswithiel in Cornwall. Local people in Loswithiel have created a special recruitment song called Ain't Got No Doctor and an accompanying video, which they released on social media earlier this week on Valentine's Day. GP partner Dr Justin Hendricks is looking for someone to come and join him in running the 5,000 patient practice as his colleague Dr William Howe retires after over 30 years. The song came about after Dr Hendricks approached local arts-led community company really lovely projects for help creating a standout recruitment campaign. The video showcases life in the area and features many people and businesses from the local community to give a flavour of what it would be like to live and work in Los With to be fair, it was a bit touch and go about whether this should be a good news story because it does highlight you know, the real recruitment challenge faced by many practices across the country and a practice that has so far struggled to recruit. But I think the reaction of local people to this and the efforts they've gone to just really serve to highlight how important general practices are to many local communities and how valued GPs themselves are. So it did make the good news section. We've put a link to the song and the recruitment website in the description of this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick and Ellie. I'm back next week when I'll be joined by Chair of RCGP Wales, Dr Rowena Christmas, and we'll be talking about the importance of continuity of care and what we can do to improve retention of GPs. Do join me then.